Hi everyone, you are listening to Manzo Collective Podcast. Orbis Tabula is a uh, sort of a combination consulting and content creation firm. Um, anytime that someone needs to take a, a physical representation of the world and convert it into a virtual world for whatever means that may be, um, we help to consult in the, the sort of the technical pipeline process and then ultimately the execution of the of the creative intent. So the the background of, of those of us that, that work here, we're primarily in sort of the, the film, you know, visual effects kind of space. And so those become our, our clients primarily, but it also operates pretty easily within, you know, games, works really well with architectural visualization, um, traditional advertising, it, basically anywhere where a, a virtual background could make sense. Now, what we talked about last time was a little bit more of sort of the traditional in-camera visual effects, virtual production pathway, um, which involves using Unreal Engine and full three-dimensional scenes to to create you know proper parallaxing and this, that, and the other. The caveat that many people in the the film and TV space or sort of virtual world creation space essentially run into is that's extremely time intensive, uh, cre mm -hmm. creation intensive, so you need the right people in order to be able to do that. And therefore, it's very costly. And so one of the great innovations that sort of come out at the exact same time, not directly related to virtual production any, in any way, but works sort of directly in parallel is um, generative AI. And so what we're able to do is rather than trying to build a full three dimensional scene, if what we actually need to do is create a backdrop, we can create a, a backdrop that is just a single two dimensional image played out on either an LED wall or using sort of a traditional green screen set extension type form. Um, if it needs to have parallax, um, some of our great friends over at Sehan Lee, they've developed a tool called Kubrick, which allows you to actually not only generate a, a backdrop, but also segment it in order to create uh, different layers from the same generative image. And then you're creating something called two and a half D. And so with that, you're able to actually move the, the you know, virtual camera perspective around um, in order to seemingly create depth, even though what's technically in the background is only a two dimensional image with with perceived sort of contrast that would make it look like 3D. Um, so those are some of the, the kind of plays that we're, we're kind of into in the generative space. Um, we're, we're building all we, right now we're building an asset library. That includes a bunch of uh, scenic panoramas. Um, we're building textures. We're building backplates, um, so that regardless of the, you know, type of content that someone is trying to make, if you don't actually know how to properly generate the content yourself, you can quickly look through the library of material that we actually have, find something that you know may be close enough, and make use of that. Um, or if you're needing something sort of extra, you can work with us and, and we'll you know help you generate um, whatever material you need in order to execute your creative vision. Um, so interesting. That's kind of a long-winded, yeah. short and sweet. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting idea since, um, since you guys work throughout the, um, the pipeline of creating a story, do you focus on the beginning or the end? of the of the whole you know sequence of making a let's say a movie helping in making a movie yeah um 
I mean, it actually fits kind of throughout. It, a lot of it is, is production specific. Um, so it, in some instances, we're able to run the, the entire the entire gamut. Uh, mm-hmm. So we can start off technically as a part of storyboarding, right? Working with with you know directors and cinematographers and, and clients directly saying, hey, what is it that you're actually trying to see, right? They, they want a way of sort of visualizing what's there. It, people within the film industry were usually pretty good about uh, being able to sort of visualize off of someone's, you know, written or sort of like spoken description of it. Um, but not everyone is. And so if we can use generative tools to specifically create as close as possible to what's being described, everyone's able to essentially operate on the same page much more easily than sort of the traditional means, which is, you know, essentially people creating sort of Pinterest boards or mood boards of all of these different kind of components that you're supposed to just amalgamate in your own imagination. So generative AI can be very, very helpful in that sort of storyboarding or pre-production process, coming up with what the original intent is. Once that's there, what we have the ability to do is essentially take those ideas and create all the necessary pieces for what would be used during production. Now, some productions are making use of the the in-camera visual effects, like LED virtual production type wall, at which point, you know, the, the material that we're creating can be loaded directly up on the wall. Alternatively, some of these productions, they don't have an LED wall, right? They don't, they don't have the ability to be able to spend, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a day to rent some of these facilities. Um, and so they're they're gonna follow a more traditional production pathway with a green screen. Well, hey, guess what? Green screen replacement has been around for decades. And so if you have a generative, you know, background that you can very quickly replace, that's akin to doing a, a matte painting effect. Now, the level of of quality is the one that sort of comes up in the air mm-hmm. as far as what the different productions sort of need. But the ability to do it either pre-production, sort of planning things out during production in sort of a an LED wall capacity or a green screen, sort of what, what's called simulcam, where you essentially just replace the background live, or if it needs to be done later on in post-production as a replacement of something, all of those elements are available to to what our our clients ultimately need. The goal at the end of the day is always to be able to provide the audience with the best version of a story, whatever form that takes on. So whatever we are needed to be able to to help with, that's where we come in. We don't want to overstep and try to do everything if the production doesn't call for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I wanted to actually ask you about one specific thing, which was, you know, the format that you guys deliver, but but you just obviously answered that by by saying like it's it's all all for for the audience. So at the end of the day, what fits to the audience, right? So, but still, like what what formats do you guys do? You go to um, you know normal uh, like 4K or or actually HDRIs? Because you've sent me some some files on that as well, like the HDRIs. That yeah, yeah. So right now we don't. <sighs> Technically speaking, um, and I, I want to be kind of clear so no one no one kind of tries to jump me in the comments or whatever. Um, technically speaking, we're not currently able to properly generate a true HDRI. Um, and that's because the color limits of generative content right now is eight bits per channel. Um, so for, a, for an RGB image, that it's a 24-bit image. So it it's not that it can't be used sort of within the context like an HDRI traditionally would be, but you don't have the dynamic range or the latitude that a true HDRI 360 capture on location would actually provide. The main question is, 
do you actually need that level of fidelity for what it is that you're trying to achieve? I would say for probably 70% of the time, the answer to that question is no. So it it, it becomes one of those trade-offs, um, which I guess we can start kind of talking about quality of, of things. Mm-hmm. It, it, similarly to, you know, where do we fit into the pipeline? It always comes down to what the production is actually calling for. Um, in certain productions, the level of fidelity that generative content creates right now is perfectly suitable, right? I'd, I'd say similarly, probably 70% of the time you can get away with generative content for the type of material that's being made. And mostly that's because most of what would be used that is generative is going to be a background that is technically out of focus. So not having sort of clarity of what that background is, if you end up having something where trees in, in sort of full sharpness look a little bit stringy or the leaves are a little bit weird, when you kind of focus on it, you're like, that image is not real. I can tell that it's AI, you know, sort of generated. If it's out of focus, that doesn't matter. It just looks like a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is obviously different when you start involving people, right? When you have people and you and you have, you know, weird formed like arms and fingers and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, that is absolutely a, a, a problem. But we don't typically do that kind of stuff. Mostly what we're creating are backplates, panoramics. Um, right now we're working on sort of a, a stitched sort of faux HDRI, you know, full three, six, 360 stitched sort of form um, and and textures. All of those things are, are currently in our, our pipeline and, and the, the library is getting bigger and bigger every day. Um, then the next tier that we're getting into, um, we kind of pause for a little bit doing some of the, the photogrammetry of three-dimensional objects, um, but we're going to start getting back into that once the rest of the library is sort of up there and sort of ready to go. So we do a combination of traditional photogrammetry capture um, in in sort of a large set environment. If someone wanted a, an actual physical location scan, we would probably do a, a LIDAR scan for the mesh and then photogrammetry for the, for the texturing of that. Um, but it becomes this, this combination of different things to try to figure out what exactly is a production needing, you know, what kind of quality do they need? It's, you know, it might be something where, where we're, you know, exporting out a 4k, you know, EXR file. It might be an 8k EXR file, you know, if the, if the wall actually needs that. Um, so it, it sort of varies on what the, what type of content it is, you know, textures are typically square, you know, not sort of, you know, 16 by nine or two, three, five or anything like that. Um, so it, it's very much dependent on the type of content, but we too, we do typically try to deliver in traditional file formats, um, and, and in traditional sort of aspect ratios and stuff like that. So that what we are creating and then providing is not all that different from what traditional capture means would would have been therefore we're not disrupting anyone's pipeline you know dramatically yeah yeah well so my next question would obviously be like why don't the studio do it you know themselves but i i understand that you guys have and you guys are expert you have, you have um yourself you have a lot of knowledge about you know the vfx industry and at the same time you know like that is i think you know the trend you know the translation of from a to b like the um, the understanding of what the needs of, of someone else is and translating that into an image i think that's where you guys uh, differentiate from from the others uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'd say that's that's probably a, a fair statement. Um, I mean, 
A lot of a lot of the visual effects firms that have been around typically are built around a, a specialty. And so they work really well within that specialty and they they continue to get lots of work based on that that specialty. Um, and so I wouldn't go so far as to say that none of the studios are sort of experimenting in this space. I know I know for a fact that that they are in, in a multitude of these areas. Um, I have, you know, friends and colleagues and people that I've met and people that I talk to regularly that, that are playing around in, you know, generative AI, in, you know, nerfs and, you know, all kinds of different new innovative stuff. But the one thing that most of the studios come back to is that while this is very new, it also means that it's currently unreliable. And so the, mm. the studios, the, the large feature films, the major visual effects firms, they're experimenting with it, but they're not going to rely on it until it is well established, right? Which is, is very similar to most well-established enterprise, you know, industrial manufacturing, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes into space. All of that has to be driven by reliability because if it crashes, the product that they're working on is far too expensive to just let fall apart. So well-established, reliable sort of structures and, and sort of understandings becomes very important. Um, if we take a look at what's happening in a lot of the, the AI space, right, whether it's, you know, machine learning, you know, technically the AI being the implementation of it, so much is coming out so quickly, it's inherently unreliable. Because you don't know exactly which element to jump in on. Um, so as much as many of these studios want to get involved in some of these, these spaces, what sort of creates and, and what our firm has sort of been able to benefit from, you know, thankfully, is they instead instead of trying to just develop everything internally, they'll typically have a few people that are sort of on their own time, you know, geek out, experiment, whatever. But those people end up networking with someone like us to try to figure out, okay, well, what actually makes sense here, right? And so very thankfully, we've been blessed that we kind of fit within this sort of thought leadership bubble to say, hey, here's what we're we're building on this. We're we're creating content on this. We're making use of it as a part of a platform. Here's what's working. Here's what absolutely does not work. And here's where we where we kind of see things going moving into the future. Right. We don't recommend most of uh, of our clients or, or people out in the industry jump in full head first into some of these technologies. Right. It's just not ready yet. A lot of this AI stuff, it's it's papers with really cool video demos. There's no code information out. Right. So, for instance, Dragon that we talked about earlier, Dragon doesn't have a code out. We don't know what the licensing scenario is of being able to make that work. So as cool as the demonstration piece is. We're not building with Dragon just because we can't properly execute that for our clients. We're not going to put that risk profile onto them until we know what it actually looks like. So that's kind of where a lot of the studios tend to operate is they have specialties in their area. They're toying with it because they want to know how it works. And at the point where it becomes sort of reliable, they'll jump on board and they'll have their own divisions of it and they'll play around with it quite a bit. But until that happens, it becomes a space for you know firms like Orbis to, to sort of jump in and say, here's what we're doing. Here's how we can use it. Here are the places where people are saying it's unreliable. We found the reliable track within this you know total chaos mess of everything's coming out all at once. Um, 
and and we can make this work for your production and it can save you on cost it can save you on time it can you know increase the creative iteration rate of what you're trying to accomplish it can make sure that you know everyone's visualized um in understanding what what is that you're trying to achieve and so we we have kind of this awesome little niche that we're able to play around with um at the very least in in the short term and you know we'll we'll adjust accordingly as the rest of the industry um joins us it makes complete sense if we have a landscape if we you know envision a landscape where you you see like in front of you you kind of see like what's coming up and uh, but at the same time you are moving forward with with saying like hey this is actually the direction that that you can take but uh, but we've been there already so maybe not so by experimenting you guys self um you can understand like if if the if the solution would be reliable or not so making mm. making sure that 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 yeah they make communicating back that to it's interesting it's an interesting space because that's where companies become you know become real companies like become uh more more of um yeah sustain sustaining their, themselves where how long do you think it takes from from uh, from experimenting to actually stabilizing the and, and formatting the um, you know this uh let's say this journey um so it's it's been different for with different uh, either ai models or, or some of the tools that come out there um it, it also helps when there are different distractions taking place that have you know they're able to kind of drive people's attention in, in different areas um so one of the nice things is things like stable diffusion it, they came out with open source it's been available for you know quite a while and they come out with different updates and stuff um so people can play with either the the sort of licensed version or they can sort of embed the code on their own their own tools we've been able to take stable diffusion content and generate things relatively quickly in a way that we're comfortable with it a lot of it is just kind of like the initial learning curve what are some of the parameters that we need to adjust for um how is this different than mid-journey which we also create content with um and then kind of trying to find the the flexibility within that uh some of it becomes as updates happen bugs are discovered and we have to find you know a workaround solution for that i, I would say we've been able to reliably build assets that we are comfortable releasing yeah. within a week of some of these model updates coming out um so for instance with mid-journey version 5 we were able to to generate content within a week um that we that we felt comfortable sort of you know qc approving and, and putting into the library that we're going to release um later later this year in the next month or two you know whenever we find that that date of, of release um so we've been able to generate using different tools different means different processes um very very quickly now how long that ends up holding up and you know if a new version you know like stable diffusion came out with the, the stable diffusion xl or whatever and so that allows for a, a handful of different tools that then become different than what we were doing in the process before Every single time we essentially take a look back back at the, the, the practice, we we you know make changes to our documentation and our um, in order to be able to consistently generate content of the, the fidelity that we believe is necessary to be usable for client purposes, right? What we think they could they could at a minimum be able to actually use and have it look believable and not automatically go, hey, wait a second, that's totally fake. Um, so the, that becomes the, the main concern, but it can be a very quick turnaround. Very, very quick. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. mostly just depends yeah. on what what bugs may show up or you know something along those lines. Yeah. So so do you, do you work in systems? Uh, what do you mean? Like in terms of like, do you work in systems to make uh, to make sure that uh, the things you know like like step one, step two, step three. Uh, oh, okay. Win, yeah, cre- yeah. win, create, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we we develop um, our terminal. We call them workflows. Um, workflows. So we we have our own, our own workflows that we that we sort of set up as far as how content needs to be generated. Um, we keep track of different things like prompts, negative prompts, other parameters that are incorporated with it. Because um, some of it is still it's it's sort of ongoing experimentation. But at the same time, we're like, hey, wait a second, we actually like what that delivered. Let's see how let's see how this actually works, and we'll generate UVs. We'll generate you know the the albedo and roughness, you know all the different stuff for like a texture. Um, and at the same time, we're right now we're playing around with the stitch panoramics. So it becomes a matter of how is this working? Does it create the right depth when we load this into something like Unreal Engine? Are we getting the appropriate sort of distance that we actually want, or does it feel like we've just created this bubble that's way too close to the to the audience and the camera? Um, so some of it is is sort of experimentation but once we have a, a certain step process that we like we'll write that out as a workflow that way we can make sure that we're following it um so that once we get more people involved it's not a sort of one-to-one person you know re reteaching it's a matter of you know we have a process it works here um we haven't quite figured out if we're going to turn that into fully public training quite mm-hmm. yet uh, you know some of that depends on how the rest of the the industry kind of expands um we we don't we don't necessarily believe fully in creating moats all the time we want other people to be able to kind of develop their own things but at the same time we don't want to take everything that we've actually got throw it out on the internet and be like hey here's how we're doing so there are some things that we don't we don't quite build in public um whereas others were were relatively open on super interesting man i um i really uh, really found the the idea kind of interesting like to to help that way especially with the knowledge that you have creating those uh um well so i, I played myself a little bit with with ai mid journey and uh, i had one small like challenge uh which was uh, being more specific in terms of you know specifying you know objects and and specifying parts that i wanted to change do you do you have this do you have that challenge as well like during create the creation of of uh, those imagery? Um yeah, sometimes. I mean, we're mostly that comes into play whenever we're doing some of the the storyboarding type work where we're trying to create a very specific dynamic, we're trying to create a particular pose, we're trying to you know set it at a particular camera angle or make it look like it's at a you know a set, you know, focal length or something along those lines. Some of it is you you have to have a clear understanding of what the what the prompt is supposed to convey. A lot of people tend to run into an issue where the the prompt itself ends up being this long extrapolated paragraph of total chaos, right? And it's got a bunch of like keywords and buzzwords and, and a bunch of like hype terms that don't actually have anything to do with what it is that you're trying to achieve. Um, but at the same time, you can't just have it so short that it's extremely vague because then you can end up getting like with Mid Journey four completely different images that are yeah. kind of what you've described but have nothing to do with anything. So we we've spent a lot of time looking at the way that we prompt the, the prompt structure that we're actually doing. Um, we we take a look at what other people are doing around around the industry. Um, there's a, a, a 
Twitter user named Nick Floats that you can follow. Um, uh, Nick, I want to say his name is like Nick St. Pierre or something like that. Um, he does sort of full on tutorials as far as like, here's the different prompts that he uses in terms of structure and this, that, and the other, um, that covers all kinds of different topics. Um, and there, and there are other users on, on the internet. Um, Krish Kashtanova, for instance, she was the, the woman that, that put together the comic book that was initially barred by, you know, the, the copyright office. And then she kind of got a copyright back, but not really, not entirely everything. So if you take a look at at content creators on Twitter that are that are building in public and talking about all the different prompts and stuff that they actually do, they will go through the research that they've come up with as far as here are the things that help prompt in this way, that way, or something else. They're not all the same. And so what you can do is you can kind of hone in on your own sort of formulaic nature as far as what prompts create what types of images. And then once you find the pieces that are actually working, then it's a matter of simplifying that prompt down to an easier to digest thing. Because just like, you know, chat GPT and other sort of text-based versions of generative AI, if you build out this massive kind of prompt, at some point it kind of stops listening to what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. And so the weight of, of the different terms and things that you do want incorporated that are a little bit later on in the prompt don't actually come into play nearly as much as you want them to. Right. And some of those may be those specific things that you're you're looking for it to do. So it's it's a lot of initially trial and error. And then it's trying to learn what exactly is it that the you know the generative AI model that you're using, stable diffusion, mid-journey, you know, whatever, what is it actually looking for you to speak to it with? Right. You have to speak to it in its own language. And once that's sort of accomplished, then you start to really get the things that you're looking for it to, to create. And it's always going to give you something a little bit wonky, but you're going to get much, much closer to the intended look of what you're trying to achieve. Interesting. Really interesting, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, actually, I'm coming from the... Yeah. Um, I had a question, actually, coming back to you creating storyboards. Is there, for example, if you generate images um like and the client says uh, i like uh, a tree from this picture and like a house from this uh, another render is there a way to tell midjourney or other ai uh, systems to combine the elements from uh different renders and include like kind of make um make a result based on what it already generated for you uh, yes, actually. Um, so there, there are a couple ways of going. Originally, it was a matter of like you had to kind of figure out what in the prompt generated that component and then include that within the prompt and sort of cross your fingers, cross your toes and just pray. Um, but but now you actually have a, a couple different avenues of doing it. There are uh, some what we would use for something like that, where a client specifically wanted, you know, element X inside another picture with element Y that's in a completely different picture is that we would actually take them both into Photoshop and essentially use some of their in-paint functionality, the automatic 111 sort of tool set that uses stable diffusion, but is able to do a process called in-painting. Um, and at, at that point, what it does, and, and some of the new stuff with Adobe Firefly, the, the tool set that they're referring to it as is called generative fill. And so what you would do is essentially use kind of like a magic lasso around that those particular, um, the, the gap between those components and you would essentially, you know, type in whatever you want that fill to actually be, and it will generate all of the the pixels that needs to blend all of those items together. So, yes, you you can create it. Doing something like that is a little bit more of a manual process currently, um, but it's it one of those things. It kind of depends on what it is that you're going for. 
In some cases, it may be a matter of you can actually stitch two images together. Um, so there's there's been some research and some effective application of using um, different images and combining them together as a part of a generative prompt. So for instance, if you had a background that you liked, but you had a, a, another photograph of a particular person and you wanted to blend those together, I know in mid-journey, and I know in stable diffusion, you can actually combine multiple photos, essentially using photos as prompts, at least in part. And so in mid-journey, you essentially bring in both of those as links through the Discord platform, which I pray that they're going to come out with an API. Um, but you essentially load those in, you bring in those links as a part of the initial part of the prompt, and then you type out the rest of it in there, you hit enter, and it will generate, so for instance, if I had like, you know, um, a, a futuristic version, you know, techno utopia, and I had a picture of Albert Einstein, I could put those two pictures together, one's a background, one's a forward, and, I, and, and foreground, and then I can literally type in and say Albert Einstein in, you know, techno utopia, you know, aspect ratio, you know, this, that, and the other, submit, and it will generate an image based off of what those image pieces actually are in conjunction with the rest of the text prompt and the other parameters associated with it to generate something that, that creates that combination. It will not be a direct copy is, is the, the part that I want to kind of put in reference there, because what it does is essentially samples in the exact same way that all the data sets are sort of sampled before it samples into statistics of what it thinks this particular image means on both instances. And then it regenerates statistically from that particular piece. So it's completely creating an image based off of the, the statistical understanding of annotations of what those two images are. And then it's rebuilding based off of those annotations in conjunction with the text prompt to create a brand new image, right? So it's not sampling the photo to create a new photo. That's not what's taking place. It's it's sort of, it's a, it's a combination of different, very technical, latent creation and, you know, reverse diffusion essentially interesting cool. yeah yeah awesome we are uh, coming though to the uh, end of the episode thank you uh, rob where can people actually find you um, online sure um yeah i'm most active in terms of social media on my linkedin profile so you can just find me rob sloan um you can see me smirking in kind of a green shirt in my profile picture um you can also find me on twitter i've got a little bit of a following over there it's uh, at rob makes meta um or you can come to my website orbistabula.io uh, if you're interested in, in any kind of um business setup just uh, shoot me a, a dm or an email and we'll chat cool thanks Thanks so much.